Welcome to Pipeline Conversations, a machine learning podcast by ZenML. This week, I spoke with Eric Landau, co-founder of Encord, a platform for data-centric computer vision. This podcast contains a lot of geekery about annotation and labeling. And even though Encord aren't an annotation tool, tool per se, Eric and his team have tackled a bunch of quite complicated problems relating to that domain. So we definitely do dig into them in, in this episode. We also discuss the much-used term data-centric AI and consider where it's useful and where perhaps there's a little bit of hype. We also get into some of the technical trade-offs and decisions that come when building a platform, as they did. I'm really excited to get to present this episode to you today, as I really enjoyed the discussion, and I'm sure you will too. As always, full show notes are available at podcast.zenml.io, and if you have suggestions for guests who can come on, please do drop me a line at podcast at zml.io. Without further ado, here's the conversation. I'm Eric. I'm the co-founder of Encord. I started the company a couple of years ago. I'm uh, focused on the research and development side of the company. So our AI models and computer vision algorithms and things that we use to automate processes. Uh, my background originally, um, academically, was in physics. I started a, a PhD in physics, um, and I had always worked in um, in research, and I, um, up until you know my my first year of PhD. So I wanted to go and try something in the real world. So I took a leave of absence, worked it, to go work in uh, quantitative trading, and then it just became a very very long leave of absence, which I'm still on. Um, so I worked in, uh, finance for almost a decade and luckily I ran into my co-founder who had the, uh, original seed of the idea of Encord and I thought it was a, a great, uh, great business idea. So I was very happy to, to join him along and to start building a business. So I don't have a computer vision background. Um, I worked in a lot of, um, quantitative modeling and, um, and statistics within uh, the framework of high-frequency trading, but uh, it's quite different from from deep learning. So I kind of picked everything up on the fly as well when we started the company. I'm kind of curious, um, just just because you mentioned it, like, it, what is are, are there many use cases for data labeling, annotation, and so on? Data quality, sure, but um, in 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 the world of finance, uh, yes. There is, uh, it, it's in a different context. Often things are, uh, you know, you're dealing with um, with time series uh, mostly, and so tabular data, um, and it can be like quite disparate data sources sometimes. But the data, in a sense, labels itself because uh, the most uh, frequent uh, predictive element that you're trying to uh, you're trying to discern from the data like you're that you're trying to model is where the market is going to go and so you know where the market's going to go because it tells you uh it'll, it'll tell you later so uh you don't have to label the data as much from that perspective um you just have to make sure uh, mostly that the data is cleaned and um you know properly processed and in a format that you can um use and run through the models but there are sometimes disparate data sources that you might get um, which can um, can benefit from having some additional tags or labels, uh, which are done externally. But the, in general, like the, the entire data processing pipeline that you would have within uh, like a quantitative hedge fund uh, looks very different from a computer vision startup that's trying to you know predict uh, retail flows in a, a supermarket. 
Yeah, I mean, I want just imagining. Yeah, there might be some. I imagine most of the data you're dealing with is time series in some way, and then you're trying to kind of potentially might want to retrospectively add some labels onto that, maybe automatically somehow. But yeah, yeah maybe it's it's quite different. Um, yeah, and the the volume of of data is quite large as well. Um, so it's difficult to it's difficult to manually label um, uh, label these things, except for you know macro events, uh, which uh, which is kind of goes through a manual labeling process, but is often done uh, in stream. So as the market is happening, people are, are kind of tagging these things for um, for relevance. So maybe just so we can kind of situate the conversation as well as kind of where where your take comes from in the conversation that follows. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about uh, Encore, what it is that that you do, like what is the core problem that you're 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 solving, I guess. Yeah, so the original company came out of my co-founder's master's project at Imperial, um, which was visualizing massive scale image data sets. Uh, and he saw how difficult it was to uh, label these these large data sets. They were it was a, a UK biobank data, so it was often doctors that were the ones uh, annotating it. And it just seemed clear to us that um, the way that people had to like annotate this data was very suboptimal. It was extremely manually intensive. It wasn't a good use of uh, the doctor's time in this case. So our original entryway into the market was to try to automate the annotation process. Um, so to do as much as we can to reduce the manual burden of getting uh, data labeled. And uh, in our original uh, experimentation with you know, different data sets and trying to like, figure out how to crack it, we had a, like, an original insight that um, tended to like, work quite well as a general strategy across a bunch of different verticals. And that was this idea of micromodels. So instead of training one monolithic model to annotate everything, you could factorize the problem into much smaller buckets and train these hyper narrow specific models that just do one thing quite uh, quite well, but aren't very robust or generalizable. So this can be as a function of your data distribution. So you might have a micro model that only fits to like one particular video or uh, your ontology. So um, specific subclasses or sub attributes within those subclasses uh, or specific types of tasks that, that uh, you might uh, need to get done. And we found that um, using the micromodel approach, you can start using automation uh, much faster than if you waited to pull a bunch of data together and train like a much more uh, robust model. So in a way, we were using um, this idea of overfitting to our advantage. Uh, and we found that um, it actually worked quite well to uh, make the, process, the annotation process more efficient. So that's the original kind of thing that we, we started with. Um, since then... Um, you know, that has evolved into like a, like a broader uh, set of training data functionality and um, uh, and tooling that, you know, uh, solves kind of a wider range of problems as well. So what's, what's special about working in the computer vision domain, particularly around annotation? Like what are, what are the engineering challenges? What are the UI problems that you face? Mm. Yeah, it's the the density of data um, is is often a difficulty, especially with video. Uh, so you know, dealing with sometimes quite long video streams, things like um, uh, colonoscopies, where they can you know, go uh, for you know a couple hours, 
and then uh, being able to navigate the video and annotate specific parts. Um, we had to, you know, we built tooling to render the video like in the browser so you can uh, you can annotate it from any any point, uh, not so not breaking it into frames, which um, makes the kind of rendering much more uh, much more difficult. Um, with respect to how it differs compared to other modalities, I don't actually have a good intuition of this because uh, I haven't done much in uh, NLP um, with time series as we discussed the the process, um, at least within the context of finance is uh, a little bit more straightforward because the data labels itself. Um, so you have, you don't have to worry about um, what, it, it's like a very procedural process for how to uh, get the data in a state that you can start uh, modeling uh, on it. With computer vision, uh, the it's much more ambiguous. So if you're trying to build a model um, and you're trying to add labels to it, it's not entirely obvious um, what types of labels you should be adding, even for like some like fixed uh, functional application that you might have. So um, you might want to, you know, let's say you're tracking people in a supermarket, as an example, uh, you might want to have a person label, but maybe instead of having a person label, you might want to have an employee label or a customer label. Uh, and then you might want to like go deeper into that. And there's all these different um, uh, kind of ambiguities into which, into how you should be thinking about the data in the first place. And I think that's, that's a, a challenge in computer vision. It might be a challenge in other um, modalities as well, but I don't have a good, uh, I, I can't like speak to, um, you know, what the, the precise differences are uh, for those, uh, those different um, types of, of labeling. Yeah, I mean, I've done in various different domains, actually a lot of labeling in my life, some in my kind of previous life as a historian. And definitely one of the the challenges, which I'm, I don't know, I feel like is quite quite hard to solve. Certainly, maybe with a with an engineering um, uh, solution, is kind of the um, lock into the labels that you initially choose, and yeah. like being able to like step out of that later on, or like change that and be flexible. I, I, yeah, how, how do you think about that? Uh, yeah, that's a great great point, um, and that was one of the things we identified early on is that. Um, especially for uh, exploratory projects or projects that are just beginning, you don't really know what questions to ask of the data. Um, so all these things uh, are very empirical. And, um, the, you know, what, what we like to say is like the success of a, a ML engineering project or data science project is um, purely a function of your iteration cycle. So your ability to, um, you know, see, oh, does this question work? Oh, okay, it doesn't. So let me try a new one. Uh, and just to go quickly. So when we built the um, the ontology uh, structure within our platform, so uh, essentially like what your labeling structure is, we made a conscious choice at the very beginning uh, to make it very, very flexible uh, and to make it mutable so that you can um, you can change it as your, your project is evolving. Uh, and that proved to be like a pretty good decision because um, people are often like refactorizing these ontologies or adding additional um, attribute layers to things, uh, which they wouldn't have known about a priority, uh, but which once they actually started working on the project, realize um, can can be quite important. So that's like a, a piece of kind of specific tech of like how we built this uh, kind of what we call like a recursive forest within our ontological um, uh, tree. And it was a lot of uh, painful engineering at the beginning. But um, I think it turned out to be a, a, like a, a good decision. 
Um, because yeah, sometimes people have this lock in effect and labels the, the best, one of the anecdotes, um, that, uh, I heard once was an ultrasound project where, um, they did, uh, bounding boxes. Well, uh, this is on the label specific level, but they did bounding boxes over like a, a structure within the ultrasound and they took inspiration from autonomous vehicles where they had very tight bounding boxes. But, um, after running the model, they realized, oh, actually for this type of data, we need to have uh, larger bounding boxes to grab additional context around the actual structure that we care about. Uh, and so they had to go and like relabel a bunch of stuff. So being able to um, factorize ontology to be able to relabel things quickly, um, that's what we tried to build within the platform um, early on, uh, at least. And do you have any kind of best practices around that? Or I don't know, does the platform nudge people in the right way? You, you often hear, um, encouragement, you know, label a hundred images and then refactor and rethink and then, then increase and then increase incrementally and so on. Like, yeah, what, what's, what works for people? Uh, just, yeah, basically that experimentation. Uh, so what we have is the ability to branch projects out and like branch, branch ontologies out, and then just try different, uh, concoctions and combinations of things. Uh, to see what what works well. The other uh, the other thing that we recommend is kind of diving deeper into specificity and complexity over time. So um, the way our ontology works is you have high level uh, classes or objects, um, and you can add um, attributes um, in in kind of in a nesting fashion. And we say, okay, we'll start with the high level thing, uh, and then if you want to get more specific, you can then add an additional attribute below it. So, uh, and it won't change any of the, the labels that you already have, but it will add a little bit more data into your, um, into your, your, uh, or a little like more information into your data and your, your project. And then you can use that to see if that helps improve. And then if it does, like you can go even more. So like getting more uh, complex and specific over time, uh, start with stuff, stuff that's simple, um, see how well it does benchmark, uh, and then iterate as, as necessary. Um, so yeah, we, we try to encourage people to, I mean, people ask us like, oh, how should I structure my labels? That's a very common question. I'm like, ah, I don't know, just, uh, try something, get, do your best guess, and then make sure that, um, you can, you can iterate over it quickly. Yeah. I mean, that, annotation and labeling gets a bad rap, but I find like going from zero to something in annotation is like, I find it super rewarding because you have that like spiral of like figuring out what's going on and learning about the structures embedded in your data implicitly and, and so on. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's, it's actually like quite an interesting product because you can have uh, IP in how you actually label your data and like what your structure is. Um, and in a, in a way, it's the specification of your model, right? Like you're putting in the original spec with what questions are you asking the data? Like, why are you, what are you trying to pull out of it in the first place? So like you're typing your model from like a label structure perspective. So uh, it, it is unfortunate because a lot of people, I mean, labeling is not, is a very unsexy work and uh, no one wants to do it. It's often um, uh, kind of glossed over by ML engineers. ML engineers just want the label data and like to run the model and like do their experiments. But if you like sat back and like think about the data before it's even labeled, like when it's in a very unstructured um, way, uh, like area, you can do a lot from um, thinking about it and structuring it correctly in the first place before it's even uh, ha has one label in. Um, so uh, 
yeah, I, I, I do think it's like a more interesting problem than people give it credit for. Sure. Um, and maybe now is the time to throw in the very overloaded term data centric AI, since like, I guess somehow you're operating in that, in that domain, certainly it's on your website and so on. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm curious, like where, where do you feel that, that, that term or the movement or, or, or all of the things around it, like, where is the value in that? Where is it just hype? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a good question. It is kind of the intuition that we had uh, when we started the company. It, it didn't have the, I mean, the term, I mean, the term has been around, I think, for, for a long time, but it got the kind of hype train uh, only like within the last year-ish or so. And we're like, oh yeah, that's what that's how we think. So it was nice to have something that validates like your worldview come out and then be like a, a popular idea. And as, all, as in all popular ideas, um, you know, there's this kind of, uh, 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 bandwagon effect where like people go too much in one direction and then like it, it overshoots and it goes back and back and forth. But, um, taking away all of that and taking away all of those uh, hype considerations, I think data centric AI makes a lot of sense. And the way that I like to define it is, um, when you're, when you're thinking about your AI application, like where is the first place that you turn to for something like debugging it? Is it, is it the model, the model parameters, or is it the actual da like data? And I, I think you get a lot more value of saying, all right, something's going wrong. Where's the first place that I look? It should actually be the data. Um, and people have undervalued that. And I, you know, sometimes we hire ML engineers uh, who um, instinctively, like when we're solved, when we're doing like our own kind of internal AI projects, they, they think to like, oh, I need to improve the model. Um, let me like go to back to models. Like, wait, wait a second. Let's, we are a data centric AI company. Let's actually first look at the data. And, and more often than not, that is the, the best way to actually solve your problem is thinking from a kind of first principles perspective on uh, the data itself. Um, the model isn't like just an auxiliary piece. It, it, it is important as well, but I think to a lesser degree than, um, the original data that it was trained on. So, um, really it's just kind of Think about the data first and then the model second. I, that's like the order of operations that uh, I think data-centric AI implies. Yeah, I mean, personally or anecdotally, in my own kind of side pro computer vision side projects, like I've always got more bang for my buck going back and like improving the labeling or, or adding things like that or just labeling more data than I have from tweaking some like hyperparameter or, yeah, um, gen generally speaking. Yeah, I think, um, I think the data, uh, no pun intended, backs that. Um, so, you know, looking at, okay, how do we improve the performance on, you know, they, and they've done a bunch of benchmarks of this. Should we um, sub in a better model or should we actually um, improve? I mean, improving the labeling is one component to it. Often it's like a, a very big one, but uh, it can be other, you know, selecting like better data for training the model or uh, doing the correct augmentations of your data. Um, so oftentimes those operations have, I mean, have shown to Im improve performance more than, uh, you know, working on a, a new model architecture. Yeah. Uh, and, and coming from a qualitative research backend, I mean, generally speaking, it, it definitely feels like a no brainer that you would want to have like better and more like good quality primary source data informing your knowledge like that. And now we have this kind of big correction where we're going back to like 
that seems a bit strange to me being new in the field, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's like having the smartest person in the world, but the only books that they can read are um, Clifford, the big red dog books. Um, like how, how much are they going to be able to know if that's the only source that they have? Um, so you can have like a, a huge amount of cognitive capacity, but if the information that is kind of fueling that is limited or flawed, uh, you're not going to be able to do much with it. Is there, is there um, I didn't know, a frontier or do, do you see data centric AI as something where, which is driving kind of new ways that people are thinking about dealing with data or like moving a little bit further in that direction? Are there uh, weird quirky experiments that people are doing, which, yeah, are fundamentally different from, yeah. Um, it's, it's possible. I think, um, you know, it's, it is more in like where their, uh, attention is, um, is set on. Um, I, I think probably there are some like new innovative things, definitely within the, the realm of synthetic data, um, and using, you know, different kind of synthetic data modalities. And, um, I think that's kind of like a data centric AI way of, of looking at stuff. Um, and there's, there's been like a good amount of progress, um, in that, in that field. But in terms of like completely new innovative things that, um, you know, wouldn't have been around, you know, five, five years ago, I, nothing comes to the top of my head, but, um, I, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not like as steeped into like the latest literature as I would want to be, um, just because the, the, the company like consumes a lot of, uh, uh, you know, um, a lot of my bandwidth, but I'm sure there is stuff that I just don't know about. Um, so yeah, just confessing my ignorance on that. Um, yeah, and maybe since you since you brought it up, uh, where does where does synthetic data fit into this in general, or or, or how you, how you think about it at at Encord? I saw you had a, a recent blog on uh, on synthetic data, so it seems to be on your mind as a company. Yeah, it's something we've we've experimented with and we thought about. Uh, in like the best case scenario, synthetic data is as much of a silver bullet as you can get uh, to to doing things because one, um, it solves your labeling problem, it solves your sourcing problem, it solves your compliance um, and data privacy and restriction problems. Uh, it solves like the volume. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it solves a lot of problems like on the face of it. Uh, that being said, it's still pretty early and it still is a double-edged sword where, uh, you know, with all these things like garbage in, garbage out. So if the, the synthetic data doesn't match like your, what you expect the model to actually be running on in the real world. So you're out of sample real world data, um, then you can, um, you can be in a, a world of pain, uh, because you're, you know, you're trading on something that's fundamentally like out of sync with what you're actually uh, running on. So you have to be careful. And I think that there are certain domains with which uh, synthetic data works very well and certain ones where it just doesn't um, and it, it's it, it has some some ways to go um, so you can see this in some like qualitatively in certain applications where if you see uh, synthetically generated videos for instance you can still kind of tell okay this is not a this is not a person right so even our um, our measly brains are are, are still um, good enough to be able to determine um, uh, real versus fake, but certain images, like still images, uh, now it's very difficult, at least for human to tell, but probably some, you know, it might still affect the, the quality model. So 
Um, still early to say, but it is something that we we are thinking about uh, quite a bit. Yeah, I've had um, differing degrees of success with, um, yeah, particularly, you know, when, I don't know whether you were talking about kind of replacing your data completely with synthetically created data. That feels like maybe it might be one step too far. Um, I've used it successfully to like correct class imbalances where you have yeah. very rare instances of something and um, you can supplement with, with synthetic data, but then I guess it just depends a little bit on the the problem you're trying to solve and to what extent can you, you know, reproduce something that's realistic? Um, Definitely. Yeah. And as a tool, it can be very powerful. At the end of the day, though, um, all validation should be done on real world data. So there's there will always be a place for real world data, because if you are um, validating on synthetic data, then uh, you're, you're, you're probably not doing it correctly. Uh, or, I mean, unless like you, you really understand the use case um, very well. So um, I, I think like as, as a tool, as you said, like correcting class imbalances, I think it's, it's quite, um, quite useful for replacing all of your, your data with synthetic data. It is a bit early for that. Um, in some use cases, it, 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 uh, it does help quite a bit though. Um, so I agree. I agree with you. And could it be, I mean, potentially it's quite a good way to bootstrap your process at the start in order to like start perhaps automating some of your your labeling and so on if you have like a whole bunch of pre-made synthetic data just to like train something to get started with uh, um, so what's interesting is that our approach is actually the opposite of that with the micro models because the nice thing about a micro model is that you can train it with very very few examples so you can train one with like five labels uh, so Within you have some data, um, literally within five minutes of getting some data, you can have a model that is now auto, auto automating your annotation. Um, so this kind of like very hyper targeted micro model approach uh, was um, more successful for us at least at the start. Uh, not to say that we won't use um, kind of this um, uh, synthetically driven strategies as well, uh, but it is like okay, start with some real world data and start iterating very quickly with your micro models to get something to get something that um, is more scalable from an annotation strategy perspective. Um, just taking a, a kind of a, a step out, I guess. Um, so you have annotation, you have, or you often have these, these kind of diagrams of all of the things that someone needs to do as part of their MLOps pipeline, you know, these MLOps landscapes, I guess, with, you know, 50,000 tools on them and, all of, all of the best practices you're meant to be following. I'm I, I'm interested, like how you see annotation fitting into this landscape somehow, because it's it's often not part of those these maps that people make, um, and actually it's also not particularly taught when people are you know education is very like model development heavy. Um, yeah. yeah, like how how do you think about that? Are those do those maps need to be redrawn? Is what you're doing kind of trying to redraw them somehow? Uh, definitely from the education point of view, um, pr it's practical AI is woefully underserved in, um, in kind of the, the academic setting and the way that, that people are learning about these processes. Um, so they learn about the math of the models and like the structures, but, uh, to, when, when, you know, when these people actually start working, they realize, 
oh, actually, there's a bunch of other things that I need to consider, which are also like intellectually interesting, but we're not covered at all in my uh, my ML engineering master's uh, uh, master's degree. Um, so absolutely, annotation, re-annotation, re- the review the review processes, um, putting these things into active learning pipelines as well. So um, getting uh, getting flows that allow you to iterate uh, quickly over your model, like your label structures, your actual labels. Um, that's very, very important from a practical perspective to get something that works in the real world. Um, a model is, it, you're not building like a static model, you're building like a dynamic process. And that's what an AI application is. It's not just one, it's not like a, you know, a widget that you just kind of give someone, you're, you're giving them a whole set of processes which are meant to um, meant to evolve over time and should evolve over, over time if they're, if they're um, to work. Uh, so... Uh, I would definitely recommend for that, but I have no stake in the like, kind of education game. And uh, from the perspective of uh, how we uh, see the landscape, uh, I, th- I think there is there are a lot of these a lot of tools. And I think from um, you know from like a rank and file ML engineer at like computer vision company, what matters most to them is that they have stuff that is just works and is integrated and they don't have to configure a bunch of different things together. So they have a flow that um, is just kind of uh, uh, easy for them to, to get started with and use and uh, annotation and re-annotation, like the active learning that comes from that um, should be part of that flow. Uh, that's what, that's what we believe in. We're trying to like build a tool that, that can be, and then can integrate with these other, other types of ML, uh, ML ops systems that um, people might be more used to. It definitely seems like there is a spectrum. Like you have, on the one hand, maybe companies like Encore, I don't know whether you situate yourself along with a lot of the other kind of annotation companies that have just kind of blossomed recently, where you kind of have annotation at the center, and then there's often things which happen automatically in the background. Models get trained. Your, uh, what was it you said, the, the micro models. There's things happening in the background. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have the, maybe the very model-centric annotation plugged in as an afterthought later on, like maybe if someone is even conscious that that needs to be a thing. But there's kind of not so much in the middle. Um, yeah, I don't, don't know if that rings true to you. Uh, yeah, so we um, we do not see ourselves as an annotation company uh, despite the fact that uh, I, you know, it, it, it definitely we definitely look like an annotation company. If it um, quacks like a duck and looks like a duck, it's probably a duck. But uh, uh, we are an annotation company that does not believe in the annotation processes. Um, so we do not uh, the way that it, data is being labeled now and, and processed now. We think is just fundamentally flawed uh, from a first principles perspective. Um, well, as one, it's extremely manual. The amount of data that's growing in the world is. Uh, at growing at a much faster play, uh, pace than the number of people in the world. So uh, just from that perspective alone, you're going to run out of people to label data eventually. Um, and so you need to find another way. Uh, so the way that we like internally think of ourselves is as a training data platform. So to solve all of the different training data problems. Um, uh, so like within that entire stack, uh, before they go into a model training and all of the other kinds of model processes that that will happen and the versioning and things that you have with the uh, with the model, so annotation is the biggest bottleneck now um, because people just need to get label data to train train their first models. Um, that's that's very clear, but it's not going to be the biggest bottleneck in the future. Um, and there's going to be a whole other 
host of problems that will be associated with it. So we really want to solve that entire kind of suite of problems and own the training data stack, not just the annotation uh, piece. And if you build, uh, well, our view is like, if you build a platform that's just geared towards annotation, you're not going to be forward compatible with the way that um, uh, stuff is going to be moving. Uh, so that's how we're kind of thinking about this internally, even though that, uh, you know, a lot of our businesses is just from an annotation perspective, annotation tooling. Right, right. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of complexity concealed under the hood of, of what you're doing so that your users don't need to worry about, I don't know, Kubernetes or service meshes or or whatever. Um, yeah, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about, about the kinds of trade-offs that come with concealing that complexity away from the user. Um, you know, is there a... a um, a place where someone should need to just like have all of the 50,000 tools interconnected in a very custom way. Like, yeah. Do you see that going away? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the design philosophy we have is opt into complexity. So, uh, from the, the like thousand foot view, you should just be able to do a, a non-technical person, a doctor or an analyst should just be able to run through the whole process, just using a GUI. Uh, not ever encountering words that they don't understand and uh, just be able to press buttons and say, okay, this thing works or doesn't work. Um, but uh, you want to make available um, for people that are more technically minded or want to do uh, more in-depth configuration, the ability to do that. So, um, you know, we've built within the GUI, like kind of hosts of advanced settings and configurations. And then all, um, outside of the GUI, like a, a very kind of comprehensive SDK and set of APIs um, which you can use to put together automated pipelines for things. So from an ML engineer perspective, like you can get as granular as you want, but from a kind of high level run of the mill user, uh, you, you should hide as much of that stuff from them as possible. Otherwise you're going to scare them away. Um, so that's how we've been kind of uh, navigating the, the trade-off now. Uh, the how to actually implement that design philosophy is obviously you know tricky and comes with its own uh, set of questions as you're building any kind of any kind of product so um that's the kind of core principle behind it but then instantiating that is uh, oftentimes like the you know uh, most of the difficulty and i guess following on from that what what have been some of the other like hard engineering problems that you've you've had to deal with or that you're you're kind of proud that you you worked your way through um, I mean, definitely that ontology thing that you were talking about earlier, that sounds fairly gnarly. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, so uh, having like a, our ontology system from an ML ops perspective, like putting our, like our, uh, uh, our whole like training system of how we can scale to a bunch of micro models and, um, you know, it's, it, it's based off of Kubeflow, but then there's a lot of stuff that we're doing. Um, a lot of uh, architectures that we're supporting and uh, uh, even like Darknet, which is like its own own beast of getting to run within the same kind of system. Uh, so the kind of ML infrastructure problems that we've been able to solve, I think we're we're pretty, um, pretty proud of that. And then separately, outside of the ML context, building the, the, the tooling to actually do uh, annotation properly and efficiently for different data modalities uh, has been a whole uh, host of engineering problems. So this building this, uh, this video uh, rendering tool, uh, one thing people really don't realize about video is that you have to be very, very careful. Uh, and you can have things like frame sync issues. There's a lot of like corrupt frames and it's very easy to screw up your annotations that way. So we had one client that came to us 
that was using another platform. They had spent six months annotating uh, video data and they threw, they had to throw all of that progress away because there was a, a frame sync issues within the videos. So we spent a lot of time uh, thinking about these things in a very kind of nuanced way. Uh, and, you know, that's one data modality. Another data modality is with uh, DICOM. So medical imaging, CT, MRI, X-rays. Uh, we built our own uh, DICOM tool that renders natively in the browser. Uh, so mostly what what people do is they convert DICOM into stacks of images or into videos. Uh, and we, uh, we kind of wanted to properly handle them because radiologists be, can be quite picky on the, the, their UI. So solving that uh, was a, like a whole other big engineering challenge, which... Um, you know, it takes a lot of effort and people don't realize like how much like blood, sweat and tears goes, <laughs> goes behind the case. They say, oh yeah, this, this thing works. And why is this button not here? Um, but that we are, I mean, I, I'm proud at least of our engineering team for, for having uh, accomplished. And I mean, how do, what does the process look for that? Do you have a lot of iteration and feedback with users or do you work quite a bit beforehand to get something that you feel is already there or do you start with like very small examples. Yeah, I mean, in general, like uh, uh, we follow the kind of YC philosophy of uh, getting products out where you should be a little bit embarrassed by them when you when you get them out to users. Uh, the best way of carving a product is through um, this uh, iterative feedback as well. I mean, it's kind of the theme of all these things is um, just being able to grab information quickly and to adapt uh, based off of it. So we like to put stuff into users, existing customers or prospective ones as, as fast as possible, and then um, update based off of like what they say and um, look for common themes and then um, use that to, um, to construct our product roadmap. So often uh, and in my very, very limited experience, like I found that there's the trade-off that comes with that a little bit is sometimes you push ahead too far, you accumulate a little bit too much technical debt, and then at a certain point, like, we need to fix this. Um, oh, yeah. Have you found that as well? Oh, totally, yeah. It's, it's a constant yo-yo where um, you're moving very quickly, and then you're like, ooh, okay, I have, I have to, like, sit back and, like, fix some of the technical debt, and then you move slowly on the product side, and then you start to push ahead quickly again. I think the, the thing here is um, when you are going when you're still trying to uh, when you're still exploring and you're still trying to figure out like what the shape of a specific product or product feature is um, speed is the name of the game so you just want to get the data as fast as possible but when you're rolling it out to a bunch of people and you want to actually um, try to kind of solidify something uh, building it properly makes a lot of sense and you don't want to be um, working on shaky foundations so there's no good uh like prescriptive answer to this, it is always just kind of navigating a fine balance, uh, which is why like, you know, running a startup is so hard because you're always um, kind of, you know, trying to make these make these trade-offs um, and, and doing them Im implicitly. So yeah, it, it's totally a, like a, a problem that we've, you know, we've hit many times. Um, and I think we will continue to hit probably forever uh, and, and hopefully like do it well enough such that we can continuously make progress. Mm -hmm. Um, have you found that certain certain industries, while you do this iteration, like people respond differently? Like I don't know, you were talking about how radiologists maybe had a, have a, a certain idea about certain interfaces. Perhaps other people have a different process. Like, do you need to d design almost different interfaces for different kinds of use cases? Yeah, or or even processes. Like I'm thinking, 
perhaps for doctors, the premium is on their time, so they want to be able to move things through things quickly, whereas other people maybe want to spend a lot, lot more time. And so, I don't know, that changes things somehow. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's one of the challenges of, of uh, being, so we focus on computer vision, we don't do other data modalities, but being broad within computer vision is that the interfaces that people want um, can often be like quite specific and idiosyncratic, often based off of like whatever other internal tool that they've used up at, up until that point. Um, so sometimes to the point of like individual hotkeys or things that they, they want uh, within the interface. So being able to accommodate all that across, you know, we have customers uh, in a bunch of different verticals. Medical imaging is our biggest one, but we also do retail and, and satellite and autonomous vehicles and uh, smart cities and agriculture and all these other, other things. And um, we often have to like make these these interfaces slightly different for um, for these different use cases, which can be quite tricky. And 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 different different stakeholders, even with even one use case, will have different considerations and different uses of the product. So your data operations person, uh, the person kind of running these projects, uh, they'll have uh, like one set of feedback, the actual annotators will have a different set of feedback and the ML engineers, which are consuming the label data, they'll have another set of feedback. So you're constantly spinning a lot of plates to make a bunch of different types of people happy, uh, which is one of the, uh, the main challenges of, of building this kind of thing. Um, and I haven't seen like a good way of kind of generalizing that. Uh, it, it is just more like being able to grind and, and do the work uh, and listen to your customers and, and to uh, iterate quickly based off their feedback. Um, one thing I've noticed like quite a bit, um, or it, it seems like with, with computer vision, um, there are quite a few, um, like very salient, um, kind of ethical issues that often come up when, when dealing with computer vision models and, and so on. Like it's uh, obviously I, I don't imagine it's like, it's more easy to be evil with computer vision than with NLP or whatever, but like quite often the, the use cases are, are far more apparent to, to an mm. outside user and so on. Um, uh, how do you think about like either just the, just the, the, the use cases and so on, or in general, just like the safety issues and all of these kinds of things for when, when working with, with computer vision uh, as a company? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're right. It definitely feels a lot more visceral when you can see something uh, and like the emotional saliences, um, can be quite strong there. Um, from our perspective, like the principle we have is we, d we don't do anything that we're not ethically comfortable with. Um, so don't work in a use case that, um, you know, you, you, you wouldn't be able to, um, justify it yourself essentially. Um, so, you know, just about being like careful and like, um, making these kind of case by case, uh, judgments, um, on, on these things. Um, and, Sometimes you don't know you don't know like where the technology is going to go, right? Like we're built we're building um, stuff. Um, you just hope that. Um, well, I mean, in general, like computer vision in general, like the entire AI field, um, you hope that on balance, like all this stuff will be for good. Which, um, if you believe kind of technological change in general uh, is is generally good for um, for humanity, then uh, that's that's nice. And uh, up until now, I think probably that's been the case. Um, any kind any time like a new technology comes comes in um, like the printing press or whatever people are always like afraid of it um, but then they realize oh actually this is actually quite good and um, and uh, pushes forward progress in a bunch of different ways that we didn't expect um, but from like the kind of first principles perspective it's just like okay um, uh, don't do things that you're uncomfortable with 
And in the in the wider um, or in the the, the, the more specific um, kind of safety case, like how how um, it can be easy with platforms, I guess, to give people a full sense of comfort and security if you see like great accuracy metrics or, or mm. whatever, but then, you know, certain people are underrepresented and whatever, you know, all, all of the, 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 the various uh, issues that, that, that things have, like how, um, how can you nudge people in the, the right direction in that, in that sense as well? Yeah, there, I think it's, it's thinking from this data centric way, because uh, if you just look at a, uh, a high level accuracy metric, that can be very, very misleading uh, for things like, uh, medical imaging, where you train on a certain like demographic, which uh, you have the training data for, but then uh, yeah, it's it's very biased against like a bunch of other people that you wouldn't realize when you're actually doing validation until it's actually running uh, in a real world setting. So having um, I, I, for all this stuff again, because it's a process, having the feedback loop both from the kind of model creation and and training and validation, but also from the uh, monitoring of the AI application is so important to ensure that um, the things that we're doing actually are working uh, and that there's no um, there are no negative safety externalities that come associated with it. Um, I think probably that because the the threshold the, the technology is so so new the the bar and the threshold for deploying it is so high that um, usually will be in the case where. Uh, we'll have deployed it too late rather than too early. So we'll be on that side of the, the chasm. Um, but once you, once it's deployed, you do want to make sure that um, you're you're not just like an ML is like, oh, it's at 99.9%. I'm just going to like get my hands off it. You have to have the accountability for the actual system uh, in a real world setting as well. Just before we round up, I'm curious, are there any... Um tools uh, or techniques or things that you've worked with recently that you're really excited about? Um, sometimes guests have new, interesting things that um, uh, I mean, it, uh, something new. it can be something very old and, and trusted as well. Oh, um, I mean, well, uh, it's not, not new. I mean, it's not like a, um, new in the sense of other people won't have this perspective, but we've been having a lot of fun just playing with Dolly and Midjourney and uh, uh, these, uh, these tools. I think it's, uh, it is interesting because you are peeking into the future a bit. So you kind of see, oh, okay. When I look at something like that, I say like, oh, there's going to be, a, uh, you know, a hundred companies that are spawned off of just someone playing around with this and the, this kind of idea. Um, not not that it has like any particular application to to Encore, but it is cool to be in the same kind of bucket of um, of technology. And there might be some like interaction with uh, technologies like that in the future for us. Uh, with regards to like stuff that we use, uh, oftentimes um, we get a lot of bang, bang, bang for buck on uh, old rather than new. So uh, everyone wants to focus on uh, deep learning methods and like the newest like transformer models, but sometimes very like, like traditional quote unquote classical computer vision methods will do a lot of work of the work for you. And I think those are uh, also woefully kind of underappreciated um, because, you know, people just want to like train a PyTorch model and have it run. But if you get, sit back and think and like look and know your entire toolkit, um, sometimes you can use uh, very simple and efficient tools to, um, to like a, a very high effectiveness. Uh, so um, I think you know, just looking at, look at the OpenCV toolkit, you know, uh, have, have a look there. 
you can you can find a lot of a lot of fun things that you can play with that that can be useful for um, for a bunch of different applications. Yeah, and even for I mean, imagine for your like your ops backend, like you know, you're using Kubeflow, like Kubernetes, like seems like probably a big part of, <laughs> of uh, how yeah. you manage everything. Yes, uh, uh, yeah, Kubernetes is uh, the the name of the game. Um, and whether you love it or not, but uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I'm luckily have not uh, like delved into it too deeply myself, but it is something that you, yeah, I think people just generally have a love hate relationship with, uh, yeah, especially yeah. on AWS. Um, but uh, you know, it, it it is like you know, um, powerful powerful technology. So we usually end with with a couple of uh, kind of quick fire questions. Um, take it in whatever direction you'd like. Um, the first one: um, What would be a quick win that someone can add to what they're doing to um, more robustly put out their models into get their models into production? Quick win to get their uh, models into production. Um, so one thing is like have like an easy visualization interface. So like when you're, cause that's, I think one people often uh, also underappreciate the, the power of just looking at something. Uh, so they'll, they'll have like dashboards with a bunch of metrics and graphs, but actually look at what's coming out. So um, in as much as like you can easily um, plug in even like an open CV window or whatever, uh, I, I think that this will help a lot within the kind of pattern matching and uh, uh, robustness adding to a, to a model. So uh, visualize, 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 you know, ju just look at, look at the actual data. Yeah. For computer vision, that's pretty good. Yeah. So again, like all, all of these things are like within a computer vision context. Uh, so yeah. I don't have, I don't have much, uh, much to say on, on many other things. Um, unfortunately. Know, great. Great. And what kind of, what piece of, um, putting models into production, this whole, uh, ML world, do you think that Toolmakers are ignoring or haven't given enough attention to uh, at the moment. Um, so I, I think that what we, you know, what we talked about in the beginning of uh, kind of factorization of ontological structures and of labels. So having ways of kind of uh, iterating over the the set of labels that you have. So this this ultrasound example that we talked in the beginning, where they did the box too tight, uh, he relabeled all the data. You don't need to do that. That's like a very simple Python script that we can, like our platform facilitates very easily. Just make the box a little bit bigger and um, you can do that in a, in a few minutes. So uh, g giving yourself the tools to be able to iterate on the kind of ontological, original ontological questions of, um, uh, of the data in the first place. Otherwise you're going to be you're going to be like pushing the levers that you have access to. And sometimes that's fundamentally limited uh, in, in what you can actually uh, get out of, um, squeeze out of your, your model performance. Super interesting. Yeah, I definitely need, need to think a little bit more about that. And um, yeah, very interesting. Well, thank you very much, uh, Eric, for coming on. Um, I had a really interesting time talking to you and um, yeah, a lot of, lot of things to, to think about. Yeah, uh, thank you, Alex, as well, for um, the great questions and for the chat. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Pipeline Conversations. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get seen by more people. And of course, it's always nice to receive feedback. 
If you have suggestions for future guests, please send them over to podcast at zenml.io. Thanks. Until next time.